Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire. So we've got a problem here at Ruins of Empire HQ. After months and months of recording this free podcast novel, producer Sean had what we call a moment of clarity. Maybe it was because I ran out of money to keep his THC, alcohol, and Fritos morphine drip going. Maybe it was just getting to the end of this project and wondering what was next. Who knows? We're about to find out. The point is, the second book is about to start, and I need the money to get Sean properly medicated and productive. So right now, you can support this podcast by going to kickstarter.com, looking up Ruins of Empire, and reserving your print copy of Ruins of Empire number 2, Templum Venerous, right now. You can get signed hardback or paperback copies of Saturnius Mons and Templum Venerous, or just throw a dollar in to get your name in the acknowledgement section of Templum Venerous. It's a chance to show your support for this little project and a chance for me to get producer Sean drugged up and happily editing this podcast. Trust me, it's better for everyone. You are listening to Ruins of Empire. Saturnius Mons, Book One of the Ruins of Empire Project, a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author and Tyler Murphy. The story so far. With the corporation and the forest people allied against the city and in position to attack the walls, Vago had no choice but to try and turn the tide of the battle single-handedly. He went after the corporation artillery first, but was wounded in the battlefield, with one railgun left operational. When the last light of the sun disappeared behind Saturn, strange flying creatures, as predicted by the Houston, appeared from the city and routed the advancing army. As the forest people fled, the people of the city emerged to capture those they could and force them to work in the refineries. Vago tried to save a few, but ended up captured himself and taken off the battlefield and into the forest. Chapter 16 Every corporation assault that destroyed a village persuaded hundreds to join the revolution. Every airstrike that leveled a training area was better than a hundred recruiting events. Pictures of rebel soldiers and their families executed and thrown into mass graves was the greatest propaganda available. The corporation's early campaigns were famously successful, and every victory brought them closer to their own demise. From The Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization by Martin Raff. The sun appeared once again from behind Saturn. Isra watched with wonder as the Venganto darted across the sky and disappeared into the tip of the pyramid like bats fleeing the daylight. Inside the city, victory was more brutal than defeat. The ecstasy of triumph ripped the mask off the city and exposed the true face of the Urbanoi. By disabling the railguns, Vago kept the city from being torn apart, and now... Isra watched people stream out of the broken walls and swarm over their fallen opponent like wild dogs. She walked in step with the Houston. He wore a beatific grin, complete with a serenity to his movements, as he watched the skies. It is as I described, said the Houston, startling her. The enemies of the Compagnia are driven away. Urbano Lagaya is safe again. 
Iser watched the first of the city's warriors drag their prizes, bound in rope and shackles, inside the walls. The people cheered as they pushed and prodded the captured Perfinduloi to the grassy spot near the gates. A whole processing apparatus had been set up so fast that Isra didn't even notice it being put together. People hauled out cages as large as a house and filled them with prisoners. Even then there was so little space that many Perfinduloi were tied to lampposts, railings, and any other easily accessible fixture. In a sick way, there was something comical about the short, squat Urbanoi forcing the tall, slender Perfinduloi to kneel in a line. Isra thought the forest people's size alone would prevent them from being taken and held. But there they were, kneeling while citizens hacked off their long hair and beards with finger-length blades. When they were done, the men's facial hair was cut to stubble on their chin, and both sexes were left with a patch of short, rough hair on their heads. From there, they were hosed down with cold water, fed by hand pumps, given plain brown clothing, strapped together Chang-gang style at their ankles, and led away in teams of five to ten. The efficiency by which dozens of people were stripped of their humanity was both impressive and terrifying. As they walked, Isra occasionally caught the eye of one of the Urbanoi herding prisoners to be processed or performing some dehumanizing task. There was nothing there except cold mechanical resolve, as if every person in the city snuffed out their spark of human compassion long enough to complete the task. When her eyes met those of the Perfinduloi, Isra felt her heart being wrenched out of her body. A man, bloodied from so many beatings, hauled to his feet to have his hands bound. A woman, crying as her hair was cut down to her scalp. A whole group strapped together at the ankles and beaten as they were driven away. Each left an indelible scar on Isra's soul when she looked at them. She closed her eyes and forced her feelings down. There would be time to grieve for these people. There would be time to raise her voice and, if necessary, arms, in opposition to this brutal oppression. But one failed attempt would not discourage Laban and the corporation. They would try again, and it would require a united resistance to stop them. The corporate chains were not as tangible, but no less real and much harder to break. The Houston observed the work as if the people being dragged into the city were nothing but livestock. The Companio has surely blessed us. With these prisoners of war, we will be able to restore the refineries and bring order to the world. He glanced over at Isra and added, You do not approve. Isra sucked a bit of air through her teeth. She let the scene affect her, and it showed. She'd have to watch herself. The Venganto did drive away the outsiders, but it is only temporary. This attack was a fraction of their potential force, and, next time, they will not hesitate to use it all. These people you are subjugating, you will need to fight alongside them if you have any hope of surviving. They are enemies of the Companio. They have shown this by allying with the enemy, just as they did so long ago. This is why they are forced to live in the forests away from the blessed presence of the Companio. This is why they must purify their souls in the refineries. Isra shook her head, but her voice remained cool and impassive. I am afraid you do not understand the threat these outsiders pose. 
It is unlike the Houston Cutter off. I am aware of the danger. It is greater than even you know. I have felt an imbalance. Titan is suffering. Isra looked away as several citizens threw a resisting Perfinduloy man to the ground and beat him with clubs. I do not understand what imbalance. The Houston sniffed the air. Can you not sense it? There is a change. A sickness. What we do here may seem cruel, but the Compagnio demands it to restore balance. Without the Compagnio, Titan dies. Isra had been avoiding the subject until now, but it couldn't be ignored anymore. It was on display, brazenly, proudly even. Isra looked up at the Houston. Is that why you killed all those people outside the city gates? Did you burn those Perfinduloi to maintain balance? To her surprise, the Houston stiffened. That was not me or my people. The Perfinduloi were in direct confrontation with the Compagnio and were judged by the Venganto. I wept for those souls, for they will never see Earth. Isra found it strange that the Houston could watch people dragged into the city, beaten, stripped of their individuality, and sent to be worked as slaves without a single shred of remorse. But remembering the death of hundreds in the spaceport made him defensive. And these people will? said Isra, motioning to the grisly scene that surrounded them. The Houston bowed his head. Yes. If they serve the Compagnia well, they will return to our home. They will be reunited with friends and family long since departed and waiting for us on that perfect world. Isra ran up and stood in the Houston's path, forcing him to stop. Please, I do not understand. What balance? What happened? The Houston smiled, almost amused. Why, you arrived, of course. He sniffed the air one more time and continued. Even as we speak, Titan dies. Balance cannot exist here when the enemies of the Compagnio are present. Take what you see here as a warning. The will of the Compagnio will be done. Balance will be restored. You and the rest of your people have until the sun sets. Once that happens, the Venganto will finish the job they began today. Hear my warning. Leave this place. The Houston walked around Isra and continued his inspection. This time, Isra didn't follow. She wandered back to the gate where, besides the makeshift prison camp, they also set up a rudimentary field hospital. There, wounded Urbanoi and Perfinduloi soldiers lay on cots, each faction on opposite sides of each other. A few soldiers tended to the Urbanoi wounded and, among them, Althea Fallon. She applied an antibiotic spray to a bloody laceration that ran down the side of a soldier's body and finished up with gauze and bandages when Isra walked up. They won't let me treat the others, said Althea mournfully. Not till I finish with these people. Isra glanced over at the Perfinduloi on the opposite side of the field. There was not a single person tending to them and, from what Isra could see, the wounds were more severe. Not that I could do much, said Althea standing. Without proper facilities and advanced technology, the most I could do is make their death a little more comfortable. There is no way to save the society as it is now, said Isra, watching the Perfinduloi suffer alone. As long as the divide exists, the corporation will exploit that 
and play one against the other. Eventually, they will bring the whole civilization to heel. Althea pulled off the bloody latex gloves she was wearing. Seems like such a trivial concern, our ministry corporation bickering. What with the cost of humanity we are seeing? That too, Isra sighed. Do what you need to do out here. I will go back to the pyramid to see Kronos. What do you intend to do? Isra paused and surveyed the wounded. The Houston spoke of balance. I do not know how or why, but that balance he seeks is somehow connected with the refineries. Maybe Kronos has found something that will explain it and help me figure out a way to end this war between the Urbanoi and the Perfenduloi. Whatever small benefit the battle brought to Vago's mind was wearing off, along with the last dose of Triple T. Once again, he found himself marching through the dense forests as his mind slipped away from him. Only the occasional prods by the man who held the ropes around his wrists, along with the stabbing pain in his side, kept Vago aware enough to maintain any situational awareness. One of the arms tied behind him vibrated just slightly, the signal for an incoming message. Isra and Althea were trying to get a hold of him. They'd have to wait for now, until he completely understood the situation. Having them charge in with no intel would just lead to more death. The shrapnel in his side would be a problem soon. So long as he didn't pull it out, he wouldn't bleed to death immediately. But it wasn't doing his internal plumbing any good. At least he could walk, for the moment. If he could keep his mind focused on his present surroundings, he could find a way to escape. After a couple hours, and a few kilometers, he noticed that he was no longer alone with his captor. Others dragged themselves through the freezing jungle, having just escaped the battle themselves. Men and women emerged from the trees with their animal skin clothing still smoldering. Many had burns on their arms, legs, and face, a mark of the Venganto attacks. He noticed the stench of burnt hair and skin as the path they were traveling became more crowded. They emerged into a clearing around a large, irregularly shaped hill. Unlike the gentle, rounded slopes that were fairly common in the area, this was a sharp rise like a sudden cliff in the forest. It was, at least, a hundred meters long. It was covered in moss, grass, and a few small trees. But there was something geometric and man-made about it. As he got closer, he saw the glint of something shiny underneath the plant life. Soon, silver metal peeked out among the browns and greens. He realized he was looking at the remains of a spacecraft. It had been there a while, maybe even a millennium. The way the forest people clustered around it told him it wasn't just another forgotten relic, but a home. He noticed a familiar voice as he was being dragged toward the ancient ship. He didn't recognize what it said, it was in the native language, but he knew the person it came from. Sergeant Carr was about twenty meters away, walking with a certain Perfenduloi man. He was about a head taller than most of the others, which was rather impressive for these people, with broad shoulders and a long braided beard. Along with the fur cloak that everyone else wore, he also had a sash around his waist made of bright white animal fur. That, and the fact that several warriors followed in his wake, gave the man an air of authority, or 
at very least, influence. At the moment, he listened to Carr talk, but his expression suggested that he didn't like what he was hearing at all. What happened next was a reflex more than anything else. Vago bolted forward, yanking his rope from his surprised captor's hands, and charged at the tall man and his entourage as fast as the wound in his side would allow. He screamed Carr's name like the Marine had personally murdered his family. It was a desperate act, brought on by equal parts fear, rage, and withdrawal-induced confusion. The entourage assembled in a line with their spears raised before Vago could get anywhere close. He stopped just out of reach and screamed Carr's name again. Vago, is that you? He said with false warmth as he walked through the line of soldiers. I thought you were dead. He walked up to Vago until they were standing less than a meter apart. Maybe I just hoped you were, considering what you did to my artillery batteries. As quick as a shot, Carr punched Vago under the jaw with a right cross. Vago fell to the ground, groaning and spitting blood. The man in charge approached. Qu estas situ? Li estas nenu. Estus pli bone. Devi modagadas lin, said Carr. Vago spat and got to his knees. He looked up at Carr, the leader, and several spearheads just a few centimeters from his face. Ain't nobody tell you that it's rude to talk in a language not everyone understands? Carr looked like he was going to say something, but the other man beat him to it. I apologize. We were discussing if we should kill you or not. It was awkward getting to his feet with his hands bound, and a pain in his side like someone taking a hot knife and jiggling it around his innards. But Vago managed it. You speak English. The man smiled slightly. The Houston and his pets are not the only ones who speak the language of the Companio, no matter how hard they try to keep it to themselves. But as you say, I am being rude. Call me Halifaco. You know Sergeant Carr? Vago snarled at the Marine. We've met. The man is as low down and slimy as they come. He'll destroy you and everyone around you. Carr clenched and made like he was going to punch Vago again, but Halifaco held up his hand. Sisu! I must say, I don't disagree with you. We have suffered greatly by allowing this man to tempt us into battle. The Marine reeled back. The assault was working. It's not my fault that your men run at the first sign of trouble. Halifaco glared at Carr. You assured me that you, your men, and your weapons could defeat the Venganto. You failed. Well, you failed to mention that the Venganto were a legion of black flying things shooting fire out of their asses. And we could have brought them down if your men didn't run like cowards. The two men were clearly in the middle of an extended argument. Even now, Vago had the presence of mind to realize that it could work to his advantage. If I may, Alifaco, I saw the toys he brought. They ain't good for nothing except blowing holes in the ground and keeping mechanics in business. He should know that. Hell, I'd say he was trying to get you into a battle you couldn't win. The look Carr gave him was red hot. If Carr had a gun, he wouldn't bother to shoot Vago. He'd just beat him with the blunt end until he was a creamy red paste. That's some pretty bold words coming from somebody smuggling guns to those heathens in the city. Vago slurred. Wasn't our intention to harm anyone. We brought those in case we had to keep the peace. We was protecting people. 
What did you do besides take the refineries for your own uses and get more folk dead in the process? Up to this point, Halifaco watched like a spectator at a tennis match. But on mention of the refineries, he shot Carr a look of pure hatred. What does this man speak of? You told me you shut down the refineries. Carr waved his hand dismissively. We did, we did, don't listen to him. We had an agreement. Those refineries are down, and they are never coming back. Even through the haze, Vago snorted, trying to suppress a laugh. Halafaco glared at him. Is there something funny? Vago shook his head. Nothing at all, sir. I'm sure he's telling the truth. Even though he and his people traveled billions of kilometers just to get at those refineries, I'm sure they had a change of heart. Carr squared up to Vago. You just shut your damn lying face. This time, Vago laughed out loud. <laughs> I'm a liar. Sure, why not? What did you come here for, then? Sun and beach? Little sightseeing expedition? Drinks that change color and girls in tight clothing? Carr snarled. What about you, Vago? Why are you here? Vago's head rolled towards the sky. It doesn't matter what my intentions are. Even if I came here to do some really, really bad things, my weapons got stolen, I had to retreat from a technically advantageous point, and in case you missed it, I've been captured. If evil intentions I had, they ain't going so well. Meanwhile, you captured the refineries on the pretext that you'd be shutting them down. Of course, I'll bet as soon as the place was secure, you told Halafaco that his men weren't needed. Halafaco's head snapped towards Carr, and he gave him another withering look. Carr clenched his teeth. Shut up, Vago, or I'll be wiping the remains of your face off my boot. Bet if you go back right now, you'd see a thousand marines stealing every bit of fuel that machinery produces. I said shut your... It'll use you and your people until the last one drops dead, be sure of it. And the whole time, he'll promise that the refineries will be shut down forever while he steals right from underneath you. Car swung again, and this time Vago rolled with it. He felt a sharp, stinging pain on his cheek and found himself face down in the dirt. He laid there until a few men picked him back up. Carr turned to Halifaco. Sir, you must not listen to this man. He is a spy and an enemy. He will only do you harm while he's alive. Halifaco looked like a man on the tail end of his patience. He considered this for a moment before he pointed to Carr and spoke to his men. Lingu Lin. Two men came from behind Carr and pulled his hands behind him. He tried to resist, yelling, Get away from me! Sir, you can't! Halafaku pulled a knife and held it to Carr's throat. I have listened to you once, and more of my people have been slaughtered by the demons that hold the city. Before I consider listening to you again, I will put it to the people who have to fight and die. We celebrate our battle with a feast, and we will decide which of you lives and which dies. Penulin. The two men pulled Carr's hands behind him again. This time, he didn't resist. Once his hands were bound, Halafaco shouted more orders. Carr, bound and walking next to Vago, leaned close and whispered, Brilliant work, you maniac. Now you're going to get us both killed. True, it wasn't exactly what Vago hoped for, but it was a start. Somehow, getting Carr on the same execution block as himself was a minor victory.
You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire, Saturnius Mons, the first book of The Ruins of Empire Project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Broken Reality by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of M. Oh. <laughs>